Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, Will Hobbs, head of UK multi-asset wealth, talks with Eric Shimp, International Government Affairs for Principal Financial Group, about whether events such as upcoming elections, the rise of China and the decline of US economic dominance could change the way we invest. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. As you will have heard, we're very lucky to have Eric from Principal Asset Management joining us today. We'll get into it in a bit, but, but Eric is another example of, and Principal Asset Management, uh, the sort of forces we can bring to bear on your behalf uh, to increase your reach as an investor, your expertise as an investor, basically giving your brain superpowers, your investing brain superpowers. Uh, we'll get into that in a second. Just in terms of markets this week, I, I wouldn't say there's too much, you know, the team doesn't feel there's too much game changing in terms of the incoming economic data at the moment that would have changed the narrative we've given you recently uh, or quite continuously. A lot of the sort of debate is really about how many rate cuts, how many interest rate cuts we're going to see next year and uh, and where are they going to be. That really sort of coincides with this idea that finally uh, people feel they've plausibly seen the peak in inflation across multiple jurisdictions uh, and that is allowing people to speculate on what next year looks like in terms of the rate picture. Again, into that comes that idea of whether or not there will be a recession. You know, our view on that is all written up. We've written lots of end of year documents as have others. You've been deluged with it. So uh, yes, do please get in touch if you have any questions on that. There are still big data dumps in between, lying between us and a period of gluttony TV and rejoined family feuds. We'll keep you updated on those uh, next week, but there are a couple of things just to keep an eye on. But for this week, um, you know, obviously one of the big topics you'll see in a lot of the outlook documents and a lot of the people talking about next year and worrying, you know, things to worry about, a big and quite general word, geopolitics, is bandied around. And as we pointed out before, there are many fewer experts in this field than those who would claim the moniker. But I'm happy to say that Eric is one of those few experts. So it's very good for us to be able to thank you for coming, first of all, Eric. And great to have you here to help us shine a little light on the sort of geopolitical field ahead of us. Well, thank you so much for the welcome. I'm really pleased to be here with Barclays. It's, it's, I think it's also really nice when uh, different firms in our industry can put our heads together. It reinforces the fact that we are really about trying to help our clients get to whatever outcomes that they want. And I'm, I'm glad to be a part of that. Geopolitics, unfortunately, has become more of a part of that for the, yeah. for the financial industry and our clients. I do want to reassure people Hopefully, I'm not like someone you're going to see on on TV spouting about geopolitics. Uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't do a lot of a lot of media. Most of what I do is is behind the scenes. But I uh, I began my career back in the early '90s as an American diplomat. I served extensively in mainland China, uh, Hong Kong, throughout Southeast Asia, and in Washington. I've had roles that varied from uh, economic policy to crisis management to working in the executive office of the president under both Presidents Clinton and Bush in a capacity as a as a trade investment negotiator. So negotiating treaties like the Trans-Pacific Partnership that the UK is yes. is thinking about attempting to <laughs> accede to. I wish them well. That would be difficult <laughs> for DTI's negotiators. And I've been involved in the private sector as a consultant to sovereign governments on economic trade investment policy, to private equity, to multinationals on aspects of political risk. And here at 
principal financial group. I've been with the company now for six years. And uh, my portfolio is the international side of government relations. So I engage with the governments across the 80 markets where we where we manage money on all manner of public policy. And I also work with our fund managers on the different aspects of, of political risk that might affect the decisions of where they where they feel they want to put capital at risk. Well, fascinating CV. And, and, and as you can uh, hear, listeners, the, he, Eric is perfectly qualified. That's the bar you have to hop over uh, in terms of expertise. So let's start off, Eric, with a sort of with a worldview, you know, that is always trying to sort of set the framework and work out where we are trying to sort of contextualize the moment we're in is always the most tricky thing for investors. So what points would you make to the listeners with regards to the moment we're in relative to other past Sure. I, I guess I would I like that phrase, the moment we're in, because I do think we're in a transitional period in the world of global politics and in the, and in the global economy itself. And you might want to liken the, the risk for British listeners, at least, to you know, a, a football game when the ball changes, <laughs> when possession changes and then there's a turn. A lot can happen in, the, in those moments. Right. And it's often on on the defenders to react and to prevent the offense from getting into space. And I do think in terms of risk, that concept can be can be useful. Some of that's because the, the architecture of global security is under more pressure now than it has been at any time since the end of the Cold War. You know, for, for 45, 50 years, the Cold War gave us a bit of artificial security mm-hmm. in the fact that the stakes were so high, the blocks were clear, there were rules of the game that the Soviets and the Americans essentially developed between themselves that allowed things to stay on track, particularly after the Cuban Missile Crisis in 62, where they got close enough to to blink. And we're now, however, you know, as I said, the architecture, so the United Nations Security Council is greatly, greatly weakened. You have a series of of developments since the early 2000s that have that have weakened our sense of collective security, whether it's Russia's attempt to rewrite the rules and regain empire that began back in 2007-08 with the war against Georgia, and then Moldova, the Transnistria, Crimea in 2014. It's not as if this suddenly appeared on our doorstep in 2021. It was it was growing. You have a Chinese leadership and American leadership that see the world very differently. President Biden's core effort on foreign policy is to extend the lifespan and expand what they like to call the the rules you know, the international rules-based order, yes. which really those rules are collective security at the UN, multilateral trade rules at the WTO, the assistance architecture for national economies from either the World Bank or the IMF or sort of the other, the other multilaterals, the development of standards on everything from the electronics that we use every day to the cars we drive to the semiconductors that we use to the quality of our food. Like the, that sort of regime of rules that we've come to, most of us in the West at least, have just come to sort of take for granted. Mm-hmm. Once that extended, the Chinese see that era as coming to an end. Like if you read any of the strategists coming out of, out of Beijing, whether it's the party school, whether it's some of the leading universities, whether it's parsing some of the speeches of the, of the leadership, they clearly believe that that era in world politics is coming to an end and it's going to be replaced by a time of uncertainty. And that means heightened competition between countries. For Beijing, it generally means seeking advantageous relationships in different parts of the world with different parties. So you'll see Chinese diplomacy in the Middle East, the Chinese efforts to expand their maritime security buffer zone in in the South China Sea, the relationship between Moscow and and Beijing. This forms a, a counterpoint that I think it's semantics, whether we want to call it a new Cold War or not. I wouldn't waste time on that, but understand that those pressures are pushing the system to probably to come to a, a decision point. Either the order is going to be extended or it's not. 
what countries are doing in the meantime impacts our markets, right? Mm-hmm. So like the US-China example is a good one because of the, the securitization of the relationship has meant restrictions on capital flows outbound, mm-hmm. restrictions on export controls on everything from semiconductors to all manner of, of advanced technology with the purpose of US policy being to what they hope is freeze Chinese uh, innovative <laughs> development yeah. at its current level. Mm-hmm. It used to be with export controls, US policy was comfortable allowing China to stay within two generations of, of innovation on chips. Now they want that frozen. That's quite controversial in itself. It's exceptionally isn't it? controversial. You know, I mean, that, that that idea, because I mean, a lot of what you described there with the sort of, you know, that order, the the sort of post-war order, that coincides with or is driven by, you know, America's unipolar moment, the moment that America is dominant, the clear hegemon. Is is that, is the fading of that hegem- hegemony, I always struggle with that word, part of this story here? Or is it China's rise? What's different my, from when it, Japan was sort of challenging America all that time ago and America was worrying about you know, Japan's rise. Is this a similar angst which America will just see through or is there something to do with the presidency or? I don't know if uh, I will. Let me go back to your first question. I do think there is a a moment of American uh, hegemony fading in certain ways because it is extremely expensive. It's resource heavy to be able to make these commitments. And we already see that we're we're stretching the United States between Ukraine and and the Middle East, just in terms of a, of a resource base. Mm-hmm. Much of the U.S. military industrial complex in terms of productive capacity was hollowed out over the last 20 odd it's years. It's amazing how much less uh, I was seeing the statistics. The arsenal of democracy is really depleted now. So it's yes, it's significantly less. I, my, yeah. my father was a civilian in the U.S. Army and always on that industrial buildup part. But at the end of his career, he had to go around shedding bases that he and his colleagues had built up. So, it, yeah. And that was in the early 90s, so yeah. after the first Gulf War. So we reaped that quote-unquote peace dividend from the Cold War without really conceptualizing that new risks would would arise. And now we have you know a threefold challenge of the U.S. military refers to China as the pacing threat mm-hmm. or the stalking threat, which means China is the only country that has the ability to project power and influence eventually what on par with where the United States is today. We need partners more. Mm-hmm. So the presidency matters. Yes. Right. Who wants to work with partners versus who wants to dictate to other partners? That'll be part of the choice in, in 2024. <laughs> I'll come to that in a second. Uh, I'm yes. sure you will. <laughs> um, the Japan and German analogies from, I would say, either the, the one analogy on Germany in the First World War might be more appropriate. Mm-hmm. And then the analogy on U.S.-Japan or U.S. or, or Japan-West relations in the late 30s prior to the war might be appropriate because there was there was an effort to contain Japan and restrict Japanese access to oil, restrict Japanese production of shipping. That has some similarities to China. Mm-hmm. The German, the Imperial Command leading up to 1914 got to a point where it believed that it had to take advantage of the window of opportunity that it saw closing mm-hmm. if it was to grow the German Empire. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the proximate causes that led them to step off the line when they did. There is certainly theorists in the U.S. who believe that China looks at this in much the same way, that if China is going to have its moment of of realizing its aspirations, it will have to be more robustly aggressive or risk losing that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And some of I think some of the U.S. policy certainly been geared to deter that type of looking at it as an opportunity. They want the risk to be higher, right? You see the U.S. relationship with the quad countries over with new security intelligence developments. You see the AUKUS deal with the U.K., the U.S., and Australia on nuclear subs. You see the U.S. for the first time in 70 years brokering 
a legitimate rapprochement between Japan and South Korea mm. and leading to a trilateral military and secure and intelligence development. All of this has put Beijing sort of on notice that, mm. oh, okay, we, we were pushing and now there's pushback. Mm. And so there's, there's a re reevaluation. The question is, will that deterrence be effective or will it lead to strategists in Beijing saying, we're going to miss our chance? Yeah, and that's the unintended consequences. Always that's a policy. Always isn't it? up there. If you yeah. treat someone like a threat, they become one to a certain degree. And the interesting, also, just from an economic side, is there's all sorts of work historically looking at how if you're, you know, as you say, America and others are trying to starve China of processing power to a degree. Mm -hmm. But there's all sorts of examples in history of how those kinds of attempts to blockade force adaptation and so on and that moving into other areas. Oh, we've areas. certainly seen that adaptation, right? With yeah. Huawei's production of a Absolutely. of a of a new chip you've seen the workarounds by the russians to sanctions yeah, uh, yeah where yeah. they've now restored a lot of their military productive capacity through third country efforts and by retooling their domestic industry yeah yeah so uh, right right so it's it's a bit it's like yeah. water right it's going to find I mean, the the point of least resistance yeah and i'm i'm always sort of you know with the, with this debate you know the one that we have sort of internally with regards to china a lot china versus the us is just sort of you know again that old story about in economic development and economic growth and productivity how much do individual freedoms matter and it may be just because we want them to matter that we think they're important in productivity but personally i do you know that's to a degree why i think america still has some advantage in this productivity story is that individual freedom story but we shall see i do i, I think there's you know and i know we're going to get into the election but when you look at u.s politicians i don't think they're doing the american public a a great service the way they talk about productivity mm -hmm. and employment. I think that, or when they talk about the risks, foreign trade somehow being risky. Yes. Um, because when you look at it over the last 20 years, U.S. manufacturing has grown twice as productive while requiring a third fewer workers to be that productive. So at the top end, U.S. manufacturing is extraordinarily competitive. Mm -hmm. The problem is we haven't figured out how to absorb all those manufacturing, former manufacturing workers into uh, give them new opportunities. Now yeah. that's where the government's fallen down yeah. uh, at any from our secondary education level forward. Mm -hmm. And those are not necessarily the discussions that we're, no. that we're having. And it doesn't seem to be too much part of the debate we're seeing for the, for the build up it's, to the next elections yet either. It's funny, it's actually, it's built into President Biden's domestic policy from the CHIPS Act to the inflation. There are a lot of subsidies for industrial production. I don't, you know, some of your listeners may well, for very good reasons, not be fans of industrial policy yes. uh, or managed trade, but here we are again. Yeah, right? yeah we're, it's we're interesting, back, isn't we're, it? we're back at the, 1970s in Europe, if you would, that's kind of where the U.S. has mapped our yeah, we need industrial to produce policy. Batteries here. We need to and part of the Biden policy is also it does try to address that. I don't like this term, but it, the human capital side, like how do we help people get better jobs? Mm -hmm. And and so some of that is in his education policy with promoting more more education in the skilled trades or crafts, more options other than the four-year university degree, but it doesn't get doesn't get a lot of press. And it's it's super interesting. Again, we've talked about this a lot with regards to sort of you know deindustrialization in parts of the U.S. and how that correlates to the opioid crisis and other things. So mm -hmm. it is a human capital problem that needs to be addressed, I guess. But anyway, we get on to elections, and this is uh, you know a topic we obviously get asked a lot about. And I'm not asking you to predict the election, obviously. I That's guess good. <laughs> yeah, That's, yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. The greatest the confidence and all that you know so give us a little bit on I, I guess things to look out for in terms of dates to watch out for up until the elections what are the big things to look out for and I guess the most interesting thing for investors here is you know we hear a lot about the checks and balances and you mentioned already kind mm -hmm. of you know the more unfettered power internationally the president might have but domestically 
the economy doesn't really dance to the president's tune that often in a way, although Biden has done some very, you know, passed some incredibly powerful, uh, whether you like them or not, you know, and, uh, you know, policy packages. What do you, what, what's your sort of outlook in terms of US policy taking into account the uncertainty of the election and what are the things that we should be thinking about as investors? There's a lot of questions I, in there. There's, a, there's a lot there, but let's start with trade policy. Yeah. I think because of the pushback, there used to be the conventional wisdom in Washington that both parties embraced free trade. As, <laughs> as John F. Kennedy said, the rising tide lifts all boats. <laughs> That's gone out the window. There is this, this great concern that free trade must be fair trade, and <clears throat> fair trade means protecting workers. And what that means is the president has been restricted politically in his ability to engage on opening new markets or, or trade policy. He had two signature trade policy efforts. One, the Indo-Pacific Economic Forum, which was supposed to be a negotiation that would recreate the TPP, mm -hmm. but without all the, allegedly without all the controversy. Mm -hmm. He was just forced essentially by his own party to step down from those negotiations. So without the U.S. being able to engage on that level economically with key partners, particularly in Southeast Asia, that creates a certain vulnerability. It, it certainly creates something with the question of, all right, this supply chain shifting out of China, does it really keep moving or not if the Americans aren't going to give tariff preferences to Southeast Asian countries for those certain products. Right. So if that's not on the table anymore, that affects supply chain certainty, particularly with the moves into Southeast Asia. On the LATAM side, they had an American partnership for economic prosperity, because we can't just call something, you know, hey, it's a trade agreement with Latin America. Uh, the president just hosted 11 or 12 heads of state in Washington last month to have conversations about getting that up off the ground. and. American trade negotiators have been tilting at, tilting at the particular windmill of free trade with South America for since the late 80s. It has failed with a number of, of fancy efforts, and it doesn't look like this one's going to go right. very many places either. In the meantime, those, those supply chain decisions with respect to Mexico, some are really waiting to see who replaces Lopez Obrador. The elections are coming up. So there's a lot of capital sitting on the sidelines. I think that remains true throughout South America, sort of that pink wave of leftist populism. People are wondering, has it run its course? They're not entirely clear. In terms of US policy domestically, you know, we're not a lot happens in the next year mm -hmm. because everyone is gearing into the, yeah. the election cycle. In terms of key dates, not to be too glib, but I'd keep your eyes on court dates for former President Trump. There is a decent chance that he could be found guilty and be attempting to campaign from a federal prison before the end of this year, before the election. That's a, it gets a lot of jokes, you know, in, in Washington. But the but the you know, the the grand jury the grand jury summons for people in the DC area just went out this past week for right. for one of his major trials. And he has he's facing federal claims, the trial in Georgia trial in New York, th there's just a serial amount of charges that it will be interesting to see for any certainty for a voter. Like, will he even be able to appear on a ballot? When you look at the math, there's probably 30 to 40 percent of registered Republicans who appear to be Trump or, or no one else. Right. right. He's their ride or die. And that makes it exceptionally hard to believe that someone like a, a Nikki Haley or a Ron DeSantis could have purchase at a national level. Mm -hmm. Even if they were to get the nomination somehow, if Trump is unable to campaign or serve and one of them gets the nomination, it will be really interesting because then the Republicans would have a turnout problem. And if it's even there, it's in that number. The turnout is the is the issue for both 
both parties right now. Democrats are going to go vote for, for Biden because they won't have a choice mm-hmm. and they won't want Mr. Trump again. But there's probably 30 to 40 percent of Americans are just they're not affiliated with parties. They're they're registered independents. In 2020, most of them turned out for Biden. Right. Uh, well, there's a lot of gloom about the U.S. economy that's not sort of lesser, you know, amongst the populace, which seems to not be borne out by the facts. It's an interesting. I, I, there's loads of studies has, about this. Is it a lag to fact is. of inflation and people are looking backwards or but maybe by the time you get to next year, there'll be a different perspective on the economy now. Yeah, I think there's, there's I'm mean, sure there's there's a lot of people in Washington who are really looking at the Fed hard. Like, are you going to make that great cut in March? Are we right? Because that's what we need. You know, we need some of those animal spirits to get back in so people will appear to have more confidence in it. It's Even though be, it's, it's unfair to saddle any single president with that. It's going to be very difficult you know, for the Federal the cycle Reserve. cycle when he hit the cycle, yeah. It's going to be difficult for the Federal Reserve next year not to be political. But <laughs> <laughs> in any way, but just final question, it was sort of, like we could carry on all day, but you need to get on. But that the, you know, you talked about the incumbent president um, and what, what are the options? Because it seems like the vice president hasn't sort of grabbed the the popular imagination to the degree of polling uh, are there backup plans in terms of I think that's we hear lots of sort of independent runs I think I saw uh, I think that's true if you you're talking on the democratic side on the democratic side Um, I think what you said is accurate. And it does appear that there are machinations among other leading figures in the Democratic Party to be ready to step in Mm -hmm. should Mr. Biden decide to replace Vice President Harris. And number one among those is Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, right? You Mm -hmm. saw him make a trip to Beijing, right? Try to show off some foreign policy credentials. You've seen him debate uh, Governor DeSantis of Florida in the last couple of weeks. So Mm -hmm. clearly, if he's not running to be Biden's running mate, then he's already running to prepare the way for 2028. So, yeah, I would look at him first. And I would also, con- you know, if, if people want to dive deep, look at Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan, who's an exceptionally capable governor, a more moderate pro-business type Democrat. OK, interesting. Eric, that was fascinating. Thank you so much. And that was, uh, yes, uh, I can I will re-listen to that again and again so that I can memorize your words. But for listeners, remember, the point here, in a way, is, is well, there are several points to, to, to bring to bear here. A is think about the expertise and specialism that Eric is able to bring to bear on this subject. Can you match that? And if you can't, then be wary of uh, overconfident predictions. The story for the global economy remains and investors remains the same. And that's probably that, you know, we are in the midst of a potential pickup in productivity growth, which is really what's going to drive your medium-term outcomes. So the story remains. Get as well-informed as you can. But in our opinion, your best chances of beating inflation over the long term are with a diversified, globally diversified fund or portfolio exposed to the world economy. Get the entire population of the world working on behalf of your savings day and night. That is what's going to drag it above inflation over the longer term. With that, I will leave you to your days and weekends, and we will speak again next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.